Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Professor Smita Sinha, consultant nephrologist at the Salford Royal Hospital and visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. Today, we'll be speaking about Smita's research into rare renal diseases and her role as the UK chief investigator for the British Calciphylaxis study. More of that later. Smita obtained her medical degrees from the University of Manchester, membership in the Royal College of Physicians in 2003, and fellowship in 2014, with her PhD interposed again at Manchester in 2010. Smita was the clinical director for renal services at Salford Royal between 2014 and 2020, and oversaw kidney care centres in the Manchester region which have enabled patients to receive their care closer to home. Smita is also the NHS England National Clinical Advisor for Chronic Kidney Disease, which is one of the four work streams that make up the National Renal Service Transformation Programme, and she also chairs Northwest England Kidney Network. Smita's research interests include chronic kidney disease mineral bone disorder, in particular vascular calcification, glomerulonephritis. I always struggled as a medical student to say that, and I have this this attack of anxiety when I see the word or hear the word, and also rare renal diseases, and we're going to focus on that. She's internationally recognized as a key opinion leader in the field of calciphylaxis and has supported the development of phase one, two, and three clinical trials. In fact, she's the chief investigator for the UK calciphylaxis study and co-chair of the International Phase 3 study of SNF472. I love these code words for calciphylaxis, and that trial is called Calcifix. She also leads the UK Calciphylaxis Rare Diseases Group. Smita tells me that she loves her work, but when she has time, even a day, she loves to travel. And her last holiday was in Argentina, and Colombia is on her wish list. I think she's going to need more than one day to do that. We're very privileged to have Smita join us today, and I look forward to hearing more about the amazing work she does and, frankly, learning a lot about rare renal diseases. So welcome to the podcast, Smita. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Gosh, that's quite a lot that you've reeled off. Um, nice to hear it in one go. Thank you. Well, you're, you're welcome. You're, you're an amazing woman. You've done some phenomenal things thus far in your career, and you've still got a hell of a long way to go. So I'm always intrigued like origin stories. Manchester, your degrees, PhD, and you're still there. For those folks listening in, and we have an international audience who don't know the city Tell us what Manchester has to offer and what's kept you there. By the way, as a Tottenham Hotspur football supporter, I do not want any reference to the football teams there. (laughs) Don't worry, Jonathan. I'm married to a Liverpool supporter, so football is definitely uh, off the uh, topic of conversations in our household. Um, But Manchester, yeah, I've never left. Um, I was... um, I'm from Bury, which is a little town in north of in the north of Manchester. So I've I've grown up there, and my entire education has been at Manchester. Um, I can't really leave. I had a three month trip to New Zealand for sabbatical, and that was about it. Um, and why do why have I not left? Well, there's just so much here um, for those international people. Um, it's the home of the industrial revolution. That's what we say. So it's always been at the forefront of of improvement, trying to do things innovatively. So we have fantastic 
fantastic higher education institutions, the University of Manchester, Manchester Metropolitan, but we've also got some great hospitals and we work quite well together. Um, so there's a real opportunity to um, improve things, particularly because we have quite um, um, a mixed population with lots of health inequalities. So as well as having great institutions, we have a population that really does need us to do better. So it's it's a place that gives you a rewarding career. So I definitely recommend it as a place to come work um, if anyone's looking for a job. <laughs> and I mean, in, uh, you know, again, in terms of quality of life, the, you know, it's right slap bang in pretty much in the middle of Britain and you've got access to amazing countryside um, pretty much in every direction. Um, so, yeah, I, I people tend to, if, if they're from overseas, they tend to think of London where I live, maybe the Cotswolds and then the rest of it they, they dismiss, which is a pity. And as I said, I'm, I'm always interested in people's origin stories and what inspired them. Your career in nephrology and focusing on rare renal diseases, what, what's your story? Um, I think like a lot of people, it's often the people around you that influence you and um, almost encourage you to go into a certain field. So my first exposure to nephrology was actually surgical, Jonathan. It was the transplant side of things. And I thought, oh, I quite fancy being a transplant surgeon because I was doing renal transplants. Um, but there were also nephrologists on on the team it's it's you know very team-based specialty um and found myself drawn towards that and then mentors people who really encourage you um found an interest in the numbers side of things and the the nice thing about nephrology is you don't have to shoehorn yourself into a certain particular type of field so you have you can manage patients with long-term conditions so you really get to develop those relationships but you can also um, do things like procedures or look at people with complex immune diseases, but also people with the more common things like diabetes. So I'd say a combination of good mentoring, inspiration, and variety in a job uh, keep, keeps you interested. And I definitely recommend it as a career. I've never met a nephrologist that regretted their choice. Well, that's that's a that's a lovely endorsement. You know, I I don't know which body it will be, but they should they should hire you to be the poster girl for you know <laughs> a career in nephrology and a job in Manchester. So. At the beginning, I'm, I mentioned calcival axis. I have to tell you, I knew zero about it, never even heard of it. So I cheated and I looked it up as I had no idea. Um, but I do know that it's rare and I know that it's nasty. So first, please, for those folks who are not uh, specialist nephrologists, can you give us a primer on the condition and tell us about the various trials you've been involved with, including the phase three study that's just completed recruitment? Well done. You know, I always tell people the best way to cure a disease is to run a clinical trial because um, all the patients disappear. Then you had another trial called Better Evidence and Translation for Calciphylaxis, or abbreviated to BEAT CULSI, in collaborations with your colleagues in Australia and New Zealand. So the floor is yours, Professor Senior. Tell us about calciphylaxis. Oh, thank you. This is um, a cause that's really close to my heart. So I did a PhD, um, which was in the lab looking at cells and calcification. Um, so quite removed from people. Um, and then when I became a consultant, um, I started to see patients with this, I think you described it really well, rare and nasty. It's awful. Um, and the amount of suffering patients go through. Um, so what happens is they get 
you have blood vessels everywhere, but you also have blood vessels that supply the skin. And in certain conditions, those blood vessels can get calcified. So instead of being nice and elastic, they get stiff and then they get clogged up. So you don't get oxygen to the tissue. So the tissue dies. So you basically get breakdown of your skin and you can imagine how painful that is. So in people who've got kidney disease and in in some diabetics, but predominantly in people who are on dialysis, they're much more likely to have this condition. And it's painful. um, And the skin breaks down and there have been no treatments for it at all. So as a doctor looking at your patient with a devastating condition to the point where they say, stop my dialysis, I'd rather die than carry on um, because of the pain. You feel totally helpless in managing them because there have been no treatments at all. Um, And because it was a vascular calcification disorder, I sort of felt that I ought to be doing something because of my PhD. Um, We were fortunate enough to have um, an early registry but hadn't got very many patients in. But the UK Research and Innovation, it was R&D at the time, landscape changed about a decade probably longer than that 15 years ago and recognized that we have to make it easier to do research so system change enabled us to develop things like registries and make trials more attractive to uh, for patients with rare disease so that's where it started so set up the uh, registry to start with and there was very little interest um, to start with but about 10 years ago, um, molecules started appearing and a real interest in trying to see if those molecules could help patients. Um, But as with all clinical trials, you have to start with phase one. And people say that patients don't want to get involved, but they do in rare diseases and rare diseases where your mortality is 60% at 12 months. Um, So the UK was absolutely at the forefront of delivering those trials. And and, um, it's been probably the pleasure of my career to see what started off as a phase one trial many years ago now having recruited a phase three trial and it's the start of many you touched on beat calci um, the snf 472 study is an industry study um, but the beat calci study is an academic study which looks at a whole range of potential interventions so we've gone from absolutely nothing to potentially having um, a study which will look at a suite of investigations and all done within a decade. Um, so it, it's it, it's a potential uh, treatment, but hopefully a blueprint for other rare diseases. And we're learning from other rare disease trialists as well. So the community's really come together to support rare disease research. I mean, I, th- I think it's, th- thank you for that. That was very eloquent. Um, I, I read somewhere that there's about 7,000 rare diseases. And if you clump them all together, they actually affect a lot of people. And I'd like to address uh, that in, in a moment. But staying with calcifics, um, you published, I think last year, 2021, uh, the phase three calcific study. What, what were the key findings and what, what do they mean for the future of, of research and patient care? Yeah, so um, we published the study design, and that was on the back of the phase two data, which was small numbers, but it suggested, and you have to be careful with small numbers, um, that there was a drug that could prevent um, further calcification of, of blood vessels and actually lead to wound healing and a reduction in pain. So that's why I think the community is quite excited about it. Um, last year, we published the study design, which is the paper you're referring to. Um, and we had to do a robust study because otherwise these drugs will never be available to our patients. So it is a bog standard randomized control trial where Half the people get the study drug and half the people get nothing. Um, But the challenge with study like 
that is if you've got such a rare painful condition it seems unfair that somebody's going to get nothing so we designed the trial so that after three months everybody would get an opportunity to get study drug um, so that's so everybody received it for another three months um, as you said we finished recruiting I'm not privy to the to um, the data as it is um, but we should hopefully report out towards the end of next year Re- recruitment has finished um, but the patients obviously need to finish the trial there are some still going through but it is an international trial um, so hopefully we'll get some data that represents populations not just in one country but all over the place um, and fingers crossed I think is all I can say at this stage yeah yeah you know I, I saw just a week or so ago that um there was a gene therapy trial that reported in haemophilia, completely different area, of course. And I saw a wonderful quote by a haematologist because the results were so good. And she said, I'm looking forward to going out to look for a new job because all my patients are going to be cured. The, the, the speed of change from nothing to something and great hope um, in these areas is, is magnificent, even though it's a small number of patients Every single one of those people is someone's, you know, uh, father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, so on and so forth. And um, we we mustn't forget that there's that there's human beings, and I I can't imagine what that must be like. Stop my uh, dialysis, I'd rather die. That must be dreadful. Can you just briefly give me a sense, or give our listeners a sense, of a patient journey? when they're diagnosed what what's the human element to this yeah absolutely and i think that's what drives researchers really to improve things certainly in this area um but it's bad enough being on dialysis anyway um you know there are some some types of dialysis that aren't as bad but generally being on dialysis is worse than not being. Um, so they have that burden to deal with. And usually what happens is they start to notice a little bit of pain in, a, in an area and the pain is disproportionate to what it looks like. So when they show people, people look at the lesions and go, oh, that's just a bruise that will go away. But it doesn't. And it rapidly breaks down. Um, and so the, and the pain gets worse. And because it's rare, people don't diagnose it. And this is another common thing with rare diseases. People don't know enough about it. How can they? So there's a delay in diagnosis. In the meantime, that pain's getting worse, but the disease is getting worse. So any early interventions that we might have tried, like improving their dialysis or whatnot, um, it, it goes beyond that. And then it impacts on the patient's carers and their families because they see their loved one in pain. Eventually, um, the lesions spread. So sometimes you can see lesions that spread across the whole leg, for example, and breaks down. They invariably end up in hospital and they're often diagnosed late when the wounds are usually infected. Um, We are getting better in the UK at diagnosing earlier, by the way, but still, they get admitted to hospital. They're in a lot of pain. They require high amounts of opiates, um, which then means that they're cognitively not always there. Um, they're mo- they're, they get weaker. Um, and in some cases, they need to have amputations if they're fit enough to have that. But the infections themselves weaken somebody who's already compromised because they're on dialysis. But the overarching theme throughout all of it is the pain, um, just constant, severe pain um, to the point where people say, that's it. I've got an option to die, and that is to come off dialysis. I would rather do that. And 
when you ask them about pain scores, you know, surgeon, you, you know about this, you know, what's your pain, one to 10? It is always 10. Um, and it is unremitting. It's relentless. And even high doses of opiates are needed. Sometimes people have needed spinal blocks to control the pain. So it's pain is the hallmark of this really unpleasant condition. Um, and delayed diagnosis. It's not dissimilar story to lots of rare diseases. People don't know enough. There's a delay in diagnosis. There are no therapies. And as a result, people's outcomes are so much worse. Yeah, I mean, there's a few of these diseases I know a little bit about. And I believe in Gaucher's, um, the delay to diagnosis on average is 13 years. Um, and the problem with especially pain is third parties may think that the whole thing is being is in their mind it's fake nothing you can see and you know for instance neuropathic pain i had it perfectly described it's like being having boiling water poured on your skin whilst you're being electrocuted um and and the, you know these symptoms are absolutely terrible and i remember once being told at medical school if a patient tells you something believe them Definitely. Yeah. So I want to dig a little bit more into the science. And I recently read uh, an article about publications on the proteome, the proteins in our body. And it described P53, a very famous protein, as the Kim Kardashian of proteins, because something like 95% of scientific papers on protein research focus on this one molecule whereas tens of thousands of other proteins remain relatively hidden to our prying eyes. And many are involved in rare diseases. P53, I know, is involved in sort of the, the cancer um, progression. Can you, can you talk to us about the range of rare diseases affecting the kidney? Um, and number two, are there some other Kardashian-type proteins lurking there that can help <laughs> diagnose or maybe even treat such conditions? <laughs> I'm just glad you're asking me about other proteins because P53, my brain's thinking we must be the only specialty that doesn't seem to have a massive focus on it then. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's, there are, so, it's such a, it is, and it sounds cheesy, uh, but it is an exciting time to, to be a clinician and a researcher because you're starting to see uh, the science uh, coming through to the forefront. Um, and, you know, all those things that people have been burying their heads in uh, researching in labs they're coming into clinical trials um, and in nephrology where we have um, genetic diseases um, and the UK absolutely leading on um, bringing our genomic understanding to front line with Genome England um, so we've we know we've mapped the genetic genome but we've got autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease it's the commonest um, autosomal dominant disease in the country um, and affects so many people um, so we've got new therapies for that but what I'm hoping is um, um, we'll start to get gene breakthroughs in that in the future as well. Uh, but the other area, apart from genetics, is complement-mediated disease. Um, so this is where when these complement-mediated um, mechanisms started coming out, I did get slightly worried because I totally skipped complement at university. And then to find that it was a major player in nephrology was a concern. Um, but, you know, we, we learn quickly. Um, and there are a range of drugs that mediate the complement system that have been found to impact on some of our rare diseases. So our glomerulonephritides, um, 
And what they found is that some of these rare renal diseases that cause kidney failure or uh, progressive decline in kidney function, nephritis, have got complement involved. So if we can if we can influence that or um, prevent certain degradation products of complement accumulating, then we might be able to prevent disease progression. And there are probably about six drugs in trial now. Um, in my clinic, I run a, um, a glomerulonephritis clinic, a rare disease clinic for patients, and it's a combined research clinical service. So when I set the service up, um, probably about eight years ago now, patients would come in and I'd say, look, we don't have any treatments, but we'll do our best, but we might have access to research in the future. Um, and in the last three years, we've been able to offer at least six clinical trials for four different rare diseases for which there weren't um, um, immune mediated therapies just five years ago. So um, I think complement is a real area for nephrology. And if you're, if there are any nephrologists out there like me who didn't have a clue, definitely have a look because I think in five years time, we'll be using these drugs all the time. Hopefully anyway, that's the plan. So complement is our, is our top top tip for nephrology, I would say, rather than P53. Astonishing. I mean, I remember the, I don't know if even, if it's still published, the BNF, the British National Formula. Oh, yeah. Online, I think now, Jonathan. It's online. Yeah, there you go. Um, I remember as a house officer, I had that in my pocket and I had ECG made easy because <laughs> it was always, it was funny. Now it makes sense to me. It didn't back then. But just how many, not individual drugs, but individual approaches to treatment there are. It's fantastic. Well, let's change topic a little bit. Um, I, if I know of someone, you know, a friend or a, or a patient who, who are overweight and explain that diet impacts the body in many, many bad ways, diabetes is running rampant. Um, I lived many years in the United States and it, it's, it's endemic. And it used to be that lack of food was the major nutritional threat. Now it's quite the opposite. Tell us about the knock-on effects with diabetic renal disease and, and sort of start at the beginning, assuming that you're talking to a lay audience, and then take it all the way through. How common is it? And then how can networks help improve outcomes, engaging primary care, digital tools, other ways to improve renal health in, in this disease? And I'm recalling when I was going through your CV, I saw that you published a paper concerning the deployment of e-alerts in, in primary care. So your, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is take on diabetic renal disease. Yeah, I think this is this is kind of my mission as my uh, national clinical advisor role, because diabetic kidney disease is is is. One of, it, it, well, it is the commonest cause of end-stage kidney disease, of progressive kidney disease, um, and we follow the US. So diabetes as a whole is increasing um, across um, the UK um, because our population is changing where we, we look different, we weigh more, but we also we, we also do less. Um, but it is more than weigh more, do less. There are um, health inequalities associated with that. Your ethnicity influences your likelihood to get diabetes. And it also influences your likelihood of getting complications from diabetes. And diabetic kidney disease is, is a complication of, of diabetes. If you've had type 2 diabetes or um, for more than 10 years, chances are you will have diabetic kidney disease. But whether your kidney disease gets worse and you end up on dialysis depends on how you manage it and how early it's detected. Um, so 
we're really lucky in many ways. You can detect diabetic kidney disease at the point where it's potentially reversible because we have a fantastic biomarker called a urine albumin creatinine ratio. It's just a urine test, really simple urine test that will tell you if you've got early disease. And if you catch it at that point, the interventions um, are fairly straightforward um, to say. Um, I mean, obviously, losing weight isn't straightforward, but controlling your diabetes, we've got a whole range of therapies that are available, including some that will help you lose weight. So the newer drugs are um, not just weight neutral, they will promote weight loss as well as glycemic control. And we're now starting to see that some of those newer diabetic drugs also reduce your risk of cardiovascular events and progression of CKD. So there are therapies there that can help with the um, range of diabetic complications, including diabetic kidney disease. Um, So if it's identified with that simple urine test early, then you can really go hard at the lifestyle as well as therapeutic interventions that we have at our disposal, which are also increasing. But if it isn't detected, so if they don't have, have that urine done, then eventually their kidney function will fall. And often by that time, the process is is in place, the damage is done. Um, And then we're just trying to slow things down as much as possible. So um, from a policy point of view, um, whether that be regionally or, you know, actually even on an individual basis, if there's any diabetics out there, do please get your annual urine ACR check. Um, And if there's any um, medics out there, you don't need an early morning urine, any urine will do, spot urine, urine albumin, um, and target those people at risk, the diabetics, but also the hypertensives. So that from a policy point of view, we really want to get the message across that we've got a brilliant test that will detect disease early, a urine test, simple and cheap. So we're trying to put systems in place that encourage primary care, but also patients. Um, so encourage patients to take ownership of their own um, management um, to get these tests done early so they can access uh, therapy. So that's a, a national drive that we're, we're looking at as part of my NCA role. Um, and if we can shift away from managing people with disease and make sure we diagnose earlier, same as rare diseases, really, but this isn't so rare, the principles are the same. So early, early recognition, because if we don't do that, diabetes is there, but cardiovascular disease is there and end stage kidney disease is there. And the diabetic patients or patients with diabetes, if they're not managed, will end up with those complications. And apart from the individual personal cost, um, it costs an absolute fortune uh, to the NHS budget. Um, So um, renal disease accounts for um, um, a massive amount of the budget, but half of it is spent on end stage kidney disease you know, the rest of it is just on prevention. So we need to shift a little bit more towards prevention rather than just managing the consequences of disease. So um, I guess my main thing for diabetic kidneys is it's a big problem. The diabetics, everybody who's got diabetes is going to get it um, at some point if they live long enough. Um, So we need to detect it early so we can uh, improve outcomes. Unfortunately, the treatments will also reduce their risk of cardiovascular events as well. So um, simple, simple therapies, um, but the hard bit is detection. Um, So you and ACR all the way. I've talked to a number of my GP friends about this because... um, you know, I would, as a surgeon, I would see patients with anything from a hernia to gallbladder, whatever it might be, who also had diabetes. And my overwhelming sense was, and this was both in Britain and America, 
my overwhelming sense was that the majority of people living with diabetes said, I've got a bit of high sugar. Um, I've got the sugar urine thing. And you say, well, yeah, but, you know, you could end up with um, on dialysis, losing a leg, becoming impotent, going blind, having heart attacks. And I just don't think that the, the severity of it uh, is being communicated to the population at large. And I think we as doctors have got to take responsibility for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that we need to do is engage patients and people. It's not, they're not patients. They're people in their, to take an interest in their own health care. But life gets in the way. And I think that's a challenge with health inequalities as well. People don't go out to, to have an amputation and end up on end-stage kidney disease. There's such a complex interplay between uh, mental health, but also your deprivation, um, as well as your ethnicity. And one of the things that we're trying to look at um, as part of the renal service transformation program is living well um, so psychosocial well-being um, as well as physical health because they are all interconnected I think what we've not done well or perhaps some areas have done it better is to try and bring it all together holistically we like to focus on our individual organs don't we um, rather than working across um, and looking at a patient as a whole so hopefully that's going to change over the course of the next 10 years but the patient has to be and it sounds cheesy central to that so we need to understand what engages patients so that they can take a greater role in their health care and I do think digital tools will help um, but again, we need to make sure that we don't widen those inequalities. So good examples are you'll see some patients, I'm sure you see it, Jonathan, they come to their clinic, they've got their Apple Watch, they know how many steps they've done, they know what their heart rate variability is, blood pressure, um, they've got all this information, um, you know, their blood sugars, and then you've got other people that have absolutely nothing, perhaps because they can't afford it. Um, so there are wider determinants of health inequalities. Just for giggles, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. And I listen, Working, living and working in America, um, you know, I, I saw patients coming from um, both in Washington, D.C. and in Los Angeles coming from the most deprived. I mean, the kind of poverty that people in Britain have no concept of right? mm. and the violence. I think pr people are becoming aware of just how violent American society can be um, The you know, people talk about health inequalities, but the truth of the matter is it's, mu it's, it's much more complex than just having money because yeah. President Clinton rolled out a campaign to make access. He, he said it's about access, stupid. That was one of his catchphrases. Everything was it's about this, stupid, right? And, you know, he made vaccinations, pediatric vaccinations, widely freely available, and there was absolutely zero change in uptake because there are cultural implications. And the other thing about Apple Watches and such like, it's kind of like, it's the worried well. It's the people who don't really need to worry about it who worry about it. No, I completely agree. And I think that, so digital tools can help, but not if you don't have access to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but a good example of access and health inequalities that are influenced by money, but also other factors is where we put our services. Um, so we noticed um, when I was the clinical director that we had fewer patients simply coming to our clinics from a certain part of the, um, the air from our region. Um, and that was a deprived area with high ethnic minority groups. But we simply didn't have um, a clinic in the area we expected those people to, to take two buses or a metro link and a bus to get to our clinic in Salford um, simple things like setting up a clinic in the community 
improved access and we found that patients were more willing to come our dna rates reduced there's still an awful lot of work to do and it absolutely is complex um but i think it needs a multimodal approach and we need to tailor it to the community so it can't be a national um in a national plan i think regions and particularly services can look at their their local population and think about how to design services around them and I think that's the aim of these not to get too political because everyone will fall asleep um, is the aim about these um, ICSs these integrated care systems the rationale behind them is that if you have primary care working together with secondary care and social care in a particular area they know their population their population needs and will decide what's best um, so that's that makes sense. Um, how it's enacted um, is probably for another podcast. Um, but I think I think we do need to work well together to try and think about what's needed for our individual populations rather than at a national level. Absolutely. So you mentioned uh, the Northern Carolinas Research um, uh, and Innovation Institute, of which you're, the, I believe, the deputy director. You've mentioned that and, and some of the work you're doing. Are, are there other things going on there that you want to discuss? Um, just to say that innovation is for everyone. And what I'd really like to see is um, frontline staff coming up with their problems um, and then put, challenging their organisations to find innovations to support them. And they don't just have to be digital like e-alerts and things like that. They can be simple things like a wristband. One of our dietitians came up with a wristband to put on uh, patients who were at risk of malnutrition in hospital. So that automatically highlighted to the nurses on the ward who were busy, that actually this person might need a little bit more help with frailty, you know, with their food. So innovation doesn't have to be digital. It can be anything. Um, but challenge your organisation to listen to you if you can um, and try and find those solutions um, because they are out there and there's a lot of industry and certainly a lot of innovative companies in the UK that really do want to help in this area. And each area should have what we call an AHSN, which is an academic health science network that should be able to bring those innovations um, to uh, the front line. So there's supposed to be pipelines in place in each network. So if you've got a problem, raise it. There's supposed to be a process. Fantastic. So you've been involved in national, international research on renal disease. What's exciting you, you know, new developments that you're excited about other than what you've mentioned in for Cosphylaxis? And um, you've also mentioned innovation. I'm a big fan of innovation systems um, and developing systems that actually lead to, and I love this expression, pace and scale. So tell us about some of your projects and aspirations that you haven't mentioned. So the pace and scale, I just to underpin anything that we want to do at pace and scale has to be driven by data. Um, so my one big ask for the NHS, if I could have it, is let's just sort out our data. Um, so our data is um, collected, it's shared, and it's available for improvement, because you can then see where you've got variation, where you have inequalities, but where we're doing well, and where you can uh, learn. But if you have data, you can look at that data at population level, but then you can also take it down to individual. Uh, so one of the things that we're really proud of at the Northern Care Alliance is our programme. It's called Revoke, which is Revol revolutionising outpatient clinical experience because you need to have an acronym. <laughs> um, and what that allows you to do is for us, and it's obviously going to be about kidneys, um, we can look at our entire population and say, OK, how are we doing at getting these urine ACRs? Is there a particular area that's not doing um, as well as would be predicted? 
you can then go in and do education with the care providers and with the communities to try and understand that um, and to try and improve those rates. But then you can also find an individual who may not have been referred, who may not even be aware that they're at risk, because we can't expect everybody to know everything. And you as the specialist can pull them into your service. So I think using data um, as a core tool for population health is is definitely um it sounds basic and rather than innovative, but it absolutely is an innovative way of delivering healthcare rather than just an individual doctor or nurse or healthcare provider to patient level. Um, so I think that's an example of innovation that's that's not particularly uh, challenging. The challenge is getting the data. Um, so that's that's probably the big one for me. That's, population health. Okay, and um, uh, an, another sort of a perspective of someone who's working in the rare disease space, doing any clinical trial, I've already uh, uh, already mentioned, you know, recruiting patients can be a challenge. But in rare diseases, there may be other challenges. I'm thinking funding, regulatory support, finding subjects, patient databases, working with advocacy groups. What are some of the challenges that you face and how have you overcome them? Yeah, I think in the UK, we are organising ourselves. um, And um, this is happening globally as well. So patient networks are a really good driver for change. And they really do push the the research funding bodies to to research. A really good example is uh, a rare condition called atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, really rare, but they've got a really strong patient advocacy group who pushed for research. But but then when a drug became available, and it was rather expensive, you know, we're looking at over a, a quarter of a million pounds, they made the case for it to be funded. Um, So patient groups are really important at every single level. Um, The infrastructure within your country and your region is important because you need ethics. So simplifying ethics processes whilst keeping them robust is important. Um, So we have a national ethics process. So it avoids different hospitals having a different take on things because that can then um, influence Um, recruitment into trials so a standardized robust ethics process preferably on a national level but then allowing individual R&D departments to decide whether that that study is relevant for their patient groups registries I mean obviously I'm going to um, talk about the UK calciphylaxis registry that at least shows you the scale of the problem and allows you to make the case for trials and uh, uh, interventions so all those things that you said are absolutely key um, and we didn't have a lot of them 10 years ago um, but we are certainly starting to organize and I think a, a national approach and where professional societies can help set up those systems so we were lucky the UK renal association which is now the UK kidney association um, has um, supported the formation of networks for rare diseases um, so we have a thing called radar but lots of lots of um, not lots of networks across a range of rare diseases do support um, that process so networks and patient engagement and advocacy are probably the key things that eventually lead to trials and interventions and um, access I mean I think one thing certainly with the pediatric uh, rare diseases is the patient advocacy groups are amazing mm. parents of these kids um, are just so motivated, so directed, so driven. They're very, very helpful. So I, you're on a podcast, but I know you also do a podcast for the International <laughs> Society of Nephrology Global Kidney Care Podcast. So what sort of subjects do you address? What are the most pressing needs for research? And most importantly, where can listeners find your podcast? 
Right, well, I'll start with where you can find it. It's available everywhere. So, you know, the usual channels, um, if you Google ISN podcast, you'll see it there. Um, but it's uh, the International Society of Nephrology. Um, so it aims to support um, low income, low middle income, middle income, as well as uh, countries like our own. So that's what's really unique about it, because the healthcare requirements for us are very different to the healthcare requirements in Nigeria. And I say Nigeria because we have a sister unit in Nigeria as part of the ISN. Um, And an example might be that they may have simply no access to dialysis or peritoneal dialysis, whereas our challenges are making sure that people on dialysis live well. So they're very different. So the ISN is a very broad um, institution that aims to support a broad range of uh, systems. So the lovely thing about the ISN podcast is, is we get speakers from, well, we get people from all over the world um, and we try and theme it. So it might be around living well with kidney disease or it might be, you know, how do you set up a kidney clinic in a rural part of, um, you know, Indonesia, for example, um, or how do you set up a children's foundation? Foundation in Jamaica. Those are the kind of conversations we have. But we also focus on inspirational individuals who've really led the way in their in their countries or their areas. Um, so it's it's a broad it's a broad podcast podcast. But um, um, I, I would encourage the nephrology community to have a have a look uh, because it will, if nothing else, give you an insight into what it's like to practice nephrology around the world and what those individuals can do in some places it's not systems that make the change it's individuals yeah absolutely i i think someone once asked me what's been the sort of the, the the proudest part of of my personal career it was collaborating internationally and getting to know colleagues from around the world and you know basically looking at our collective humanity um and that you know people from the indian subcontinent to 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 asia the americas everywhere People are all the same. They all face the same challenges, but deal with them slightly differently, which I guess takes me into my last question for you, which I love asking all guests. Let's assume that a, a genie grants you three wishes to improve healthcare. What would they be? Right. Well, am I allowed to say world peace to quote Miss Congeniality, but perhaps not. Um, so um, uh, data, again, I, I, just, I just think if we had access to data, We as clinicians or healthcare providers and working with our patients will know how to improve things. We just don't have access to data to help us make improvement. So um, make data accessible um, and interlinked. Um, So from a UK perspective, I think everybody should have an electronic health record, if nothing else, Um, but absolutely data. Um, And then I think um, we need to, we need to think about our population as a whole. Um, So, how do we engage our, our our population in its healthcare? Because it isn't just a single organ that affects people; it's it's everything. And if pa- if we don't engage patients in their own healthcare, then we're always going to be struggling. So, I'd like more patient engagement and understanding about the impact of healthcare of of health or unhealthy living, um, and data. So, I think with those two things, we we would make a huge difference. Um, and you know what? I'm going to throw a third in. I'd like a workforce plan. Well, um, I don't know that. I think you know, <laughs> being a cynic, maybe world peace is more achievable. <laughs> so I'm afraid that's all we've time for today. Thank you, Smita, for taking the time to talk to us, sharing your experience, your insights into the world of renal medicine, rare diseases, 
for your hard and dedicated work and frankly for everything you're doing for patients it's truly been a pleasure oh thank you jonathan so folks if you've enjoyed this episode please like us on social media i believe that's what one has to say tell your friends and colleagues check out all the archived prior podcasts and join us next week for another journey into the fascinating world of healthcare. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Stay well, stay safe, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.